All right, welcome to part three. This is my Women in Ministry series covering, I mean, an exhaustive, exhaustive study on all the Bible teaches on the topic, especially to engage in the debates on the egalitarian side and the complementarian side. All the big debates. I spent months researching this topic so I could bring you this series. And just to bring some definitions by way of introduction, right? In case you're new to this or you need to be reminded, egalitarian, that term, it refers to people who think that women have no authority restrictions related to their gender in church leadership. So you should never say to a woman like uh, that task or that role isn't for you because of your gender. Like that should never be said. Then there's the complementarian side who think that at minimum, because there's a whole bunch of different people within these camps, at minimum, women are not supposed to fulfill the biblical role of elder. What commonly is called pastor, but there is a difference um, in many churches, we'll talk about that later on. So I, I, I mean, there's real believers on both sides. I want to have this discussion, this debate uh, openly and honestly, but also graciously and kind and recognize that I have brothers and sisters who love, who really love Jesus. This is not an empty thing I'm saying, who really love Jesus on both sides of the debate here. But that doesn't mean that we should throw our hands up like, there, like there's no clarity because somebody's wrong and it and it does matter. It's not, it's not primary, it's not gospel, but it matters and it affects our lives in a lot of ways. So this, this video is going to go into that in detail. Um, <clears throat> before I explain what today's video is about um, and get into it in more detail, we're going to talk about the Old Testament examples of women as, in leadership. I want to talk about my first video and my second, just to bring us up to speed. So in the first, and I won't do this every time, but today I think I should. So the first video I did, uh, you know, why we can't think biblically about it. My goal with the first video was to remove obstacles and beliefs that will cause us to bypass the Bible completely. Like we'll ignore the Bible if we have these presuppositions that I talk about in the first video. I think that's probably the most important video in the series. I hate to say that because it's not even really that much of a Bible study, <laughs> but, uh, but people make their decisions about the Bible without the Bible on this topic a lot. And the second video I did uh, two weeks ago was... Uh, where I gave a case that Genesis 1 through 3 seems to establish a husband's leadership in relation to his wife. But that's husbands and wives, not men and women. And this should not be used to keep a woman from having dominion and authority over the earth. So today, we're going to broaden this stuff out. And we're going to ask questions like, hey, um, beyond husbands and wives, what about women in various leadership positions in the Old Testament? Do we see this? Is this really happening? They were not able to be priests, everyone agrees, but there's some debate on how much other stuff that they actually did. So we have Deborah, who was a judge and a prophetess, and that's a, actually a really big deal. We have several female prophets in the Bible. I've heard some Christians say there were no female prophets in, in the Bible, and I'm like, no, there were. Okay, Moses, uh, the, the sister, Moses' sister, excuse me, Miriam, she was a leader. She was a prophetess. What kind of leader? What kind of leadership did she have? That's where the debate is. There's more issues about this than you probably realize. And so I want to give you a warning before we head into today's video. And the warning is this. Um, these are mostly examples, not teachings. So it's not like the Bible says, here's what women should do. For the most part in the Old Testament, we're just looking at examples. Here's what women did and didn't do. It's difficult to take those and turn them into rules because it could be the intersection of culture. It could just be that's what women did partly because that's just the culture and God wasn't necessarily commending it. Or maybe he was. And that's where it gets a little difficult. The real key is going to be when we get to the New Testament. But we have to dig into the because the New Testament has direct teaching on this stuff. Um, but the Old Testament has to be harmonized. Like we, we need to have a comprehensive view of all of scripture on these topics. And I think that that's how God uses, uses the Bible to balance us out. So we don't become too strict 
or or lacking wisdom when we have good correct policies but we we enforce them in clumsy and silly ways um so then we'll finally ask the question today of why weren't they priests women could not could not be priests that's by direct command of god women could not be priests what's up with that but this is my cat moxie she's been missing for months you guys haven't seen her she just doesn't want to hang out with us but today she decided to and it may have helped that i uh laid my sweater down for those of you who have cats you know they, they like to lay on your clothes <laughs> so Anyway, I just thought I'd show you a little bit of a moxie cat cam going on there. Um, <clears throat> but I've been reading your guys' feedback. I'm watching like your your feedback on Facebook, your feedback here on YouTube, Twitter. I'm like looking at the different things people are saying. And I think it'd be really helpful if before I get into today's long video, yes, it'll be long, that I just offer a summary of yesterday's video um, or last time, not yesterday by any stretch. So the last video I did, here's a summary of it. And I'm just going to read these points. I'm not going to explain them in detail. I just want to do this because I think some people didn't understand what I was saying. And a, and a simple summary can really help that as we move forward so there's no confusion. All right, Genesis 1. My point of Genesis 1 is that uh, it's it's it teaches us about women and their relationship to creation. Not exclusively, but as it relates to this study, women and their relationship to creation. Not the relationship to men. So women, like men, are made in the image of God. That's point one from Genesis 1. Point two is women have authority to subdue creation just as men do and should not therefore be kept from exercising dominion in relation to creation. So I think isolating a woman to housework only is a way of doing that. I think that that violates her, her um, uh, having dominion. Not that housework isn't like a job of, of families and even more often of women. Not I'm, I wouldn't say exclusively. But that isolating is the problem here. Genesis 2, the conclusions I had here is that it's about a man and woman's relationship with each other. That's why you don't see that in Genesis 1. It's about creation and, and people. This is about man and woman and their relationship to each other as well. So Adam's made first. These are indications that there's male leadership in Genesis 2 before the fall, meaning it's part of the design. So this is a husband's leadership, right? Adam's made first. The New Testament supports this in 1 Timothy 2. Uh, Eve is made for Adam. The New Testament supports that in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 9 and 10. Uh, the, uh, let's, yeah, I won't go into details because I did it in the last time. Uh, Adam names Eve. He names her. That's an indication of his higher role. Adam, not Eve, is giving commands from God that he must relay to Eve. So he's the one, it seems like he's kind of more, a little bit more in charge. Adam is first approached after the fall to give account, even though Eve is the one that sinned first. Adam's the one who's first called to give account. And Adam's curse, number six, is on all mankind. And all the earth, whereas Eve's curse is only in relation to women. Here's just some of the points that kind of indicate, and there's New Testament support for that. 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5. These are things that indicate like that Adam had like a natural leadership according to God's original design. In Genesis 3 then, when we get to the discussion of the fall, and I don't think enough people debate on Genesis 2. I think they all talk about Genesis 3. But when you get to Genesis 3, the curse does not initiate role distinctions, Right? He sh your desire shall be toward your husband, but he shall rule over you. It doesn't initiate these role distinctions related to authority between Adam and Eve, husband and wife. It brings difficulty and hardship into them, but they don't start there. That's a big conclusion because now in Genesis 2, we have part of a creator order that I, th my understanding of the passage. And as we go through all of the scriptures, we'll see, I think, that this harmonizes really well. Like it's a comprehensive view that the um, there's a real role for a husband's leadership in the family. In the, with his wife in particular, the wife's also a leader of the family. Um, but um, but it needs to be balanced with wisdom. So 
I reject uh, the helper argument. I re you know that because Eve's called helper that she's subservient or something. I don't. I reject that for reasons I explained. I reject the argument that the serpent subverted God's pattern of leadership by tempting Eve rather than Adam. I, I don't see merit there. But I think the cumulative force, when you add these points together in Genesis 2, they're very powerful. It seems like we're neglecting to let the Bible lead us if we don't acknowledge so many arrows pointing in the same direction that Adam had like a, a role of authority in relation to Eve. It's limited, but it's there. So the first readers of Genesis, I think, and this is, I'm going to say this casually, but it's super important. The first readers, this is how you do hermeneutics, right? The original readers of the text of Genesis would have naturally seen this much more clearly than you do today because we don't have the same culture. So they these all would have been signs to them of the authority that Adam had. So my conclusions so far have been this. A husband's higher degree of authority in relation to his wife is pre-fall and part of God's good design. It should not limit a woman's ability to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, nor should it be used to invalidate a woman being made in God's image. But it does inform us about how a husband and wife are to relate to each other with different authority roles, each having great authority and the highest possible dignity while the husband has leadership within their relationship. Abuses and difficulties post-fall don't invalidate the harmony of Genesis 2. That's my summary so far, like doing the Genesis stuff. So now we're going to dig into today. Um, all right. I think both sides can learn a lot from this stuff. Uh, as we survey the Old Testament to look at examples of women in leadership, at least that's the claim, right? That these are examples of women in leadership. And we're going we're gonna to survey this. The complementarians, they tend, the, the people who I, in the end, will be agree, I'll agree with the camp, but I'll disagree with some pieces of the camp. Um, the complementarians tend to minimize these women that are in some form of leadership by not fully acknowledging their roles. And I mean, this is even people like uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem, I think that they tend to minimize people like, say, Deborah, you know, in a, in a way that doesn't do justice to what we're reading in scripture. Women um, shouldn't have authority over men in, in society in general is one of the beliefs of some complementarians that that there's spheres like there's like the marriage relationship. That's one sphere where we have a husband's role, right, be of authority. Then we have like the church sphere. OK, and that relates to eldership mostly. Then we have like the societal sphere. Some people say in society there's no there's no uh, place for a woman to have authority over any man in society. Uh, that's the most extreme patriarchal kind of view. Uh, but I think that the study today is going to refute that. Um, the worst complementarian treatment of these women in the Old Testament is to simply ignore them, though. And so I'm glad that we're going to look at, look at them. Now, the egalitarians, on their side, my analysis would be that they tend to maximize and stretch the data. I think probably the biggest example of this is a scholar named Linda Belleville, who we'll, I'll give you many, many examples as we go through today's video, who tends to grab a hold of a woman in the Old Testament and then, like, put a magnifying glass on her role so that it looks bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, she's not at all the only one. Um, Amy Bird does this. Amy Bird, in her book, she, she uh, re recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, which is meant to be a slap at, at, at Wayne Grudem and John Piper's book. Um, in her book, she actually says that Holda, who we'll talk about later, Holda the prophetess, she canonized the Torah by her prophecy. And I mean, I'm sorry, guys, I'm giving you a preview here, but that's utterly ridiculous like such such a huge stretching i mean okay we'll move on um but the altrains do force us to look at these passages so i think there's some issues on both sides we'll try to find not just a middle ground but we'll try to find clarity as we navigate through it 
So let's talk about some initial perspective I'd like for you guys to consider as we're digging deep on this topic. Uh, the Old Testament is a record of events in a very patriarchal culture. Everybody should acknowledge this as we open the Old Testament. They're, they have a very patriarchal culture. So does the New Testament, by the way. Um, leaders in Israel are almost always men. Leaders across the board are almost always men. And so when we do see these women, we're pulling out like these occasional examples that happen in the midst of the, the, the forest that is male leadership. And I'm not saying that we should make conclusions about that, like that, therefore, that's God's design. Because what we want to do is then ask, but is there a way to see how God sees this? Because God may well just be using male leaders because it'll reach the people in the culture. It doesn't mean that he has to or he wants to, right? That may just be the way it is. Um, so we're, we just need to recognize, though, that there is this there is this cultural question. One of the issues I have in this debate, though, is that sometimes egalitarians will grab the culture card and they'll pull it out and say, oh, well, Paul only said that because of culture. And what I want to see is some corresponding reason in the text to think it was just culture. And that's where the difficulty is. So um, the question is, yeah, does that reflect God's ideals and commands or merely the environment of the time? So examples can help because it could show like a, a woman leader like Deborah, a judge. It could show a countercultural example where God does something in spite of the culture. Then that becomes a really strong example. Clear teaching, though, is going to be even better. So we're hopefully going to look for the clear teaching stuff. And actually, the place where the, the teaching is the clearest is on priests in the Old Testament. That woman couldn't be priests. So it's complicated. <laughs> let's dig into some of the examples. Let's let's go right into it. Okay, so Miriam. Uh, Miriam is the sister of Moses. There's Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And the three of them are like the family that God is using as he's leading the people of Israel out of Egypt during the Exodus, right? Uh, Moses is, is like the ultimate leader. Aaron is the high priest. And Miriam, his sister, wasn't just like a hood ornament. She was a prophetess and she had a, a, an important role. Let me um, share with you an egalitarian view on Miriam. So this is from um, the Two Views book on women in ministry, which I think is very helpful. Um, it doesn't present a stronger complementarian view. Uh, Blomberg, Craig Blomberg has a really soft compliment, super, super soft complementarian view, but it's still very complementarian. And Schreiner has a, a sl slightly less soft view, um, but I lean towards that way in the end anyway. So uh, Linda Belleville and Craig Keener represent the egalitarians in this book. And Linda Belleville says the following about the Old Testament and leaders in the Old Testament. Linda Belleville in chapter one. And like, I mean, she, nobody writes more in this book than her. It's, she dominates the book <laughs> as far as quantity of writing. It's, so it's a lot of her content here. Um, Women leaders in the Old Testament times, Linda Belleville writes on page 51. It is clear that, the, that historically women have been gifted for ministry. Gifting, however, does not necessarily make a leader. While women appear in a variety of ministry roles in the Bible, the key questions are whether these roles warrant the label of leadership, especially over men, and whether the community of faith affirms women in these roles. The answer on both accounts is a decided yes. So she feels that there's this, and you read her writings, you get the sense Linda Belleville feels that there's a lot of evidence of women in high leadership positions over men in the Bible throughout, especially the New Testament. And we'll talk about all her stuff uh, in the New Testament next time around. But know this, Linda Belleville is the one that's quoted by everybody else. Like all the other scholars I read quote Linda Belleville because she's done tons of work on this exact topic. So she does represent the egalitarian position largely. 
Here's what she says about Miriam. All right, Moses' sister. As early as Mosaic times, this is on page 51 and 52 of uh, the Two Views on Women in Ministry. As early as Mosaic times, women were affirmed as leaders of God's people. Miriam, for instance, was sent by the Lord, along with her two brothers, to lead, and she has that in quotes, lead Israel during the wilderness years, Micah 6.4. Remember that, Micah 6.4. According to Micah 6.4, says Linda Belleville, Miriam was sent to lead Israel. So she's a leader. And I'll continue the quote now. Uh, she was held in such high regard as a leader that Israel would not travel until she was back at the helm. Numbers 12, 1 through 16. Micah 6, 4 is particularly important because it shows that Miriam's role was traditionally and historically understood as a leadership one by the community of faith centuries later. So th that's a pretty strong claim. There's two points that she, I'll leave this quote up for a bit. There's two points she's making about Miriam, that Miriam was leading because Micah 6, 4 should be translated as lead in reference to Miriam. Remember that part. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to analyze both these claims. And her second claim is that the people, the Israelites, were so dependent on Miriam as a leader, so dependent on her, they would not travel until she was back, quote, at the helm, unquote, and in her role as leader. So those are two claims. Now, what you do when you get these claims, this is what almost nobody does. They read a book like this and they go, oh, wow, look at that. See, there's women leaders in the Old Testament. Oh, dumb complementarians. What we should do is we should stop and look up the passages and consider what they say that's what we're going to do today. So let's go to Micah 6.4. Micah 6.4 says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now, you know there was a Hebrew word here that Belleville was talking about, saying, hey, that's the word lead, talking about Miriam being a leader. If you had to guess in this sentence where that word is, where would you think it was? Hmm? I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Did you know it's this word up here? I mean, in the Hebrew, it really does mean lead. In the Greek, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it also means that. That's the other word she put there. So, so that's correct. But God is the subject, not, not Miriam, not Moses, not Aaron. So this is stretching the text. This is what I say. It's the stretching of the text. I'm not saying there's no implication of any kind of leadership role for me, but it's not what you thought it was when you read Belleville's quote. And this is the problem with a lot of the writing on this stuff is it just stretches the text of scripture. Um, <clears throat> it's not just Linda Belleville. Um, Philip Payne, he says this about Mary, uh, Miriam. The prophetess Miriam is sent by God, quote, to lead Israel. Now, notice, look again, this is how the egalitarians that I'm reading, these are top scholars, they're, they're, they're like bedrock scholars, like everybody else quotes them. And it's a, a reckless handling of te the text, right? Miriam sent to lead, and it's to make, made to make the point that Miriam is a leader for the people of Israel. But let's go back to the scripture. What does it say? It just says, I brought you up. God says, I led you. And redeems you from the house of slavery. Now, we don't know of any role that Miriam even had during the time when God was taking them out of the land of Egypt through plagues and all that other kind of stuff. It seems to me like this is about what God did. Then he says, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, Aaron, and Miriam. And that word sent before does not mean lead exactly. I mean, it, you, it could mean that, but it's a much softer term. Okay, it's a much softer term as you dig into the, the meaning of the word. He sent before them Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So just Belleville and Payne, Philip Payne, they'd stretch things here. 
Miriam was in a role that had some relation to leading, some relation. But you can't do what Belleville says and say, therefore, Miriam was, quote, at the helm. At the helm. And so this is part of what we see in, is, is in the egalitarian works that I'm reading. Most of them is a survey of Old Testament stuff that people aren't that familiar with. And everything's so magnified that it takes on a look that you don't recognize when you just read the text of scripture anymore. The next thing that was said, which is um, a more, even more inaccurate. I'm sorry, you guys. I'm not, I'm not, I know it sounds like I might be attacking individuals here. I need to quote my sources. So, you know, these are real egalitarian arguments at the same time. I need to show you where the problems are. So it can come across like it's a, an intentional personal thing. And it, I don't mean that way at all. Um, but these things are in writings, they're published works. This is, this is the, the case they're defending and everybody's quoting them. So I need to deal with this head on. Let's deal with the second claim. Um, Linda Belleville says that she was in such high regard as leader that Israel would not travel until she was back at the helm. So Belleville's summary is to emphasize that people collectively, the will of the people, she talks about the collective will of the people of faith, the community of faith, that they had a will, a, a decision that said, Miriam, you are such an important leader to us. We got Moses, we got Aaron, but you're so important. You're so key. We will not travel without you in that place of leadership. Is that right? Is Belleville correctly handling the, the scripture here? Um, and the answer is going to be in Numbers 12. We're going to read through Numbers 12, 1 through 16, because that's the passage. All right, I'll, and just ask yourself this. Is, is Belleville right? Is the overall flow of the passage saying that Miriam, we won't, we won't travel without you, Miriam. We need you to lead us. Numbers 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. Because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. She's not a, she's not Jewish. She's not Abrahamic, right? And they said, has, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Verse three. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. So Moses, uh, is, you know, they're upset with him about things. And as leaders, they're like, hey, you know, we could lead too. And they're sort of subverting Moses's authority here because he's he's chief above them all. And they don't, they're not liking that. Verse five, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly <clears throat> and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us because we've done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cries out, uh, you know, heal her, please. Moses, he, he does the intercession thing, which represents Christ, our interceder, uh, intercessor, <clears throat> intercederesser. And, and so she, uh, she gets healed. But, but verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, if her father had but spit in her, her face, she should not be shamed. Or should she not be shamed seven days, but let her be shut outside the camp seven days. And after that, she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. 
After that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Um, so conclusions from the passage. I'll throw these out there quick because we have so much to cover today. Moses is a different kind of leader than the others, uh, even than Aaron, right? Or Miriam. Um, they might prophesy. Miriam certainly does. She's a prophetess. We'll get to that in a moment. But Moses has a much stronger and higher role and gets more direct communication and has greater leadership as a result. She's rebuked for actually usurping Moses's authority. All she says is that God has spoken to them, but God says, no, no, what I have with Moses is something more than that. Now we'll talk about Belleville's claim. Belleville says, I read it again, because I want you to know these are the, this, this is the claim. She was held in such high regard as a leader that Israel would not <clears throat> travel until she was back at the helm. Now, if you paid attention, you already know this is this is just this is bad Bible study. But let me show you another egalitarian scholar, Marg Mosco, who says the same thing. This is on her blog on her website, but she she does write extensively on these types of topics, and she's known. So um, here's the quote. Um, Mark Mosco says, God punished Miriam for speaking against Moses, but the Israelites refused to move on until she was restored to health. Now, I think Mosco is probably quoting Belleville here. She doesn't say it, but I, I, I imagine she is. But refused to move on. There's literally nothing in the passage about her re them refusing to move on. When we go back to scripture and we look at verses 15 and 16, right here, the highlighted portion on your screen, Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days and the people did not set out until uh, on the march till Miriam was brought in again. After that, the people set out. Where's the refusal? There's nothing about the will of the people. And Belleville and Moscow, their points depend 100% on the will of the people being that they refuse to go anywhere until Miriam is, quote, back in leadership. But when Israel traveled, it wasn't a democracy, right? In fact, it's God's command. Let her be shut outside the camp seven days. And after that, she can be brought in again. Like God's the one who's like, hey, seven days, seven day delay. Um, when this is also key for, I mean, some of you guys already know this. You're like, you're like punching a wall because you already know when Israel traveled in the Old Testament during the season where they had the tabernacle and the pillar of fire and the cloud, they did not travel by democracy. Ever, never, ever did they travel by group vote or by the will of the people. They travel by the command of God. Let, let me read to you the passage. Numbers 9, same book of the Bible, 15 through 23. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the, over the tabernacle, like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Verse 17. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent... After that, the people of Israel set out and in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped at the command of the Lord. The people of Israel set out at the command of the Lord. They camped as long as the cloud rested on the tabernacle. They remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued on the tabernacle, many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle. And according to the command of the Lord, they remained in the camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, what do you guys think they did? They set out. <laughs> Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out 
but when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. Do you guys get the rep repetition of scripture here? It's trying to make things clear that these scholars are ignoring. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. The people didn't refuse to set out. The people waited until God told them to leave. That's it. There's no will of the people involved. There's no, we need Miriam at the helm. Like this is all fabricated. This is all forced into the scripture because somebody is pushing an agenda that doesn't match what we're reading in the word of God. And that is one of my pet peeves. Um, we all make mistakes, but let's be honest. This is not a hard mistake to fix. Um, and so it's, we should, we should note it. Hopefully these same scholars, cause I know they're all going to watch my video, right? I doubt it, but Hopefully in the future, they'll, they'll look back and go, okay, I need to at least change my argument because something's wrong with what I'm doing to the scripture here. Um, so let's continue talking about Miriam briefly though. So Miriam had a special role in Israel. Like I said, she was a prophetess. Um, <clears throat> there are some who deny there were any female prophets like in the Bible. Again, I scratched my head, but I even saw it like on my social media stuff as I'm preparing for these things. And I'm like, what? Um, yeah, there were, there were women who were prophets. Um, and some try to minimize the role of these women prophets saying that they only prophesied privately to people and not publicly. I think that also feels artificial and forced on the text. We don't have anything in scripture that tells us they only prophesied privately and not publicly. And we have some examples of them doing it publicly. So she was a prophet. Uh, numbers 12 hints at that when she talks about how hasn't, they talk about how hasn't the Lord spoken to us too. But she was not a leader like Moses. She was a prominent woman who was able to tell the people of God what God was saying. She was. And one example of her leading in this way is Exodus 15. And would you believe it? There's a debate about this, these two verses. <laughs> There's debates everywhere. You throw a rock, you, you hit a debate on the topic of women in ministry. <clears throat> then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the tambourine, a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Here she's not prophesying something future, but she seems to be role, in the role of a prophetess because she's not normally called this. She, is, she's, she was always a prophetess during the season, but she's not normally called that. Like to have that term, prophetess, in the context of her doing this implies there's something going on here. So <clears throat> she's having... Um, I mean, you might say divinely inspired singing that's happening here. And she leads these women. So Miriam was clearly a prophetess. Um, and in the passage, Exodus 15, Moses leads the people in a song of deliverance after the Red Sea crossing and the destruction of Pharaoh's army. Then we read Miriam and her song. And she leads all the women after her. And she sang to them. <clears throat> um, this is one example of her leading in Prophetically. Now, this is why you can see why there's debate, right? She's leading women specifically. And so um, let me see here in the book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This is a, a complementarian book authored by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. In this book, they comment on Miriam and the complementarian side says, Miriam, the prophetess, focused her ministry, as far as we can tell, on the women of Israel. Now, this again is, I'm going to say this is like... Um, Sometimes the, the egalitarian is like stretching at the text. Like, where does it say that Miriam as a whole focused her ministry on the women of Israel? We just have two verses about one thing she did at one moment. It's just not a lot to, to go on, you know, just to make such conclusions. 
Um, <clears throat> so Marg Mosco, that same egalitarian scholar, she pushes back on this. <coughs> Pardon me. And she says that while Miriam is leading the women in song, the them in verse 21 on your screen is masculine. She's singing to the men. So she encourages men to sing to the Lord. So she leads women out after her with tambourines and dancing. But the, the direction of the singing, the instructing is, hey, men sing to the Lord for he's glory. He's triumphed gloriously. When you back up, actually, and you look at it, what you see is men and women joining in chorus back and forth together to sing to God about what he's done. But we don't have this like clean separation where it's Miriam's like only, uh, you know, talking to women. I think honestly, with these two verses, we're just leaning too hard on the, on, on very little data, very little data. I will add this. If you read numbers 12 again, carefully, you'll see that her complaint against Moses has not the Lord spoken to us as well. It implies that God spoke to her, to the people in general, and not just to women, because she's using that as a way of challenging Moses. Right? But if God had only spoken to her in special limited ways, whereas he spoke to Aaron in more broad ways, you see how this doesn't really fit well. So that's a soft suggestion that, that Miriam could have prophesied to men and women together. And there's nowhere in the scripture that says that she couldn't. So um, I'm going to say that we cannot limit. I think it's fair to say you can't limit female prophets to speaking to women only. I'm just trying to notice the text here and what it says. Um, nor would I limit her to prophetic singing. Some commentaries say that Miriam was just a prophetic singer. All, all her prophecy was just singing songs. Um, no, like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm going to do a big old thing on that, but I'll just say I, I don't think there's any merit in that argument. So Miriam had some degree of leadership. Here's my conclusions on Miriam before we get to Holda, another prophet, female prophet. Miriam had some degree of leadership. There was some measure of leadership here. It's not like Moses. She's rebuked for trying to push for leadership like Moses. She's not a priest like Aaron. Maybe that's why she was made leprous and Aaron was not because he had priestly duties he had to perform. So that's an ongoing need and uh, she doesn't have that role. Um, that's one possibility. Or maybe it was because she was the greater offender because she was a woman, some would say. Or maybe because she was just the greater offender because she was just stirring up trouble unrelated to her gender. Um, but her leadership does have some limits. At least sometimes it's focused on women okay. doesn't mean it had to be exclusively like that. It's connected to prophecy and she doesn't seem to carry any official role other than prophet. That's important. I don't see any official role for Miriam other than prophetess. Whereas Aaron is high priest. Moses is the leader of Israel. We don't see that for her. So now we'll ask how much a prophetess is a leader. Um, and if that kind of leadership had any limitations, let's look at Holda and Holda is in second Kings 22, 14. And this is another one of the prophets. Um, this is the one Amy Bird says canonized the Torah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'll get there in a minute. <laughs> we won't get into her claim about the canonization thing. It's just on my mind because ever since I read it, I was like, you what? He said, what? Don't you care? Um, okay. Belleville, Lin Dr. Linda Belleville, she makes a lot about the king choosing Holda over other prophets at the time. L let me read to you the passage. Um, this is second Kings 22, just verse 14. So Hilkiah, the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Isaiah went to Holda the prophetess. So these are all people who Josiah is sending to go inquire from Holda, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lives in Jerusalem. 
in the second quarter and they talked with her. Then she said to them, I'll read a little more. Uh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, that's Josiah. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, that was the Torah. This is, Amy Bird thinks that was the canonization of the Torah. I just, I just want to cry. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, they, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because you, your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should, um, I hope I hit the right button there. That they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I have also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back the word of the king. So, a uh, great, powerful word. It's an instruction about all of Israel, it, it's instructions to a king. This is big stuff. But let's read how the egalitarians talk about it. Um, so let's start actually with Philip Payne. So here is Philip Payne on Holda. The priests chose to consult her rather than her contemporaries. Now, this is the, the talking point on Holda for the egalitarian side. They go, hey, there was Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk, all active prophecy, prophesying men at the time. And they passed over all of them. They picked her, Holda, over her. I want Holda, not Jeremiah. I want Holda, not Nahum or Habakkuk or Zephaniah. Um, now, this is something we hear from all the egalitarians pretty much. Um, here's Craig Keener in his book, uh, Paul, Women and Wives. And he says that a king would send to her and then obey her instructions indicates her authority, not her lack of it, that she alone was chosen and that she was probably the most prominent prophetic figure in this part of Josiah's reign, even though Jeremiah had begun his early ministry. So, so hold it is she's the bomb. Let me keep reading. I think, I think we're, again, we're stretching the text. I don't want to throw it away, but I don't want to stretch it beyond recognition. Her renown as a religious counselor was such that when the King Josiah commanded his advisors to go inquire of the Lord concerning the words of this book that has been found, the book of the law, they sought out Holda. Um, that, that's Linda Belleville. The third, the third uh, quote here is from Linda Belleville. So <clears throat> let me offer some pushback. Um, there is no indication in the text, there's none, no indication of any kind that they picked Holda over some other option. So it would be very different if you read the Old Testament and it said, they said, uh, hey, Josiah, uh, Jeremiah's over here, Zephaniah or Habakkuk or somebody. And and Josiah goes, no, 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 I need Holda. I need the best prophet we've got, the most authoritative prophet we have. Like this is, this is all fabricated, like it's not in the text. So it's true that there's these other prophets. But the question is, how do we explain them using her and not using them? Is it best explained by Holda was more authoritative and more respected and more prominent? Um, well... Holda is pre is present in Jerusalem as you, as I read the passage she's literally in Jerusalem in the same city as the king who has who has discovered the book and is and is in a panic moment it makes sense that he picks the closest prophet quick who's the closest prophet like that actually fits the context there's a contextual indication there that we could we could uh, say gives 
you know, good reason to think that's a legitimate view. Also, Hulda has a relative who is very likely in the court of the king. Her husband was the keeper of the wardrobe, we read in 2 Kings 22. The keeper of the wardrobe. And so um, kings and prophets often had tense and difficult relationships. So a connection of, I know someone who knows that prophet, that could actually help make that meeting a little easier. And so I, I would think that could be another explanation. And again, that comes from the text and not from my imagination. So I always look, this is a good rule in life, you know, in scripture, look to the scripture for explanations. Look for an interpretation that rises from the details of the passage before you look outside the passage for details. Still, um, to not throw Hulda out entirely, Hulda was a prophetess and she, as she was sought by the king for direction from God. That's enough to be really important for our study about what women did. And this is like a woman who's, I mean, you could say, well, prophets aren't really leaders. And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, that was like, I'm not inclined to think that. Like, if you're a prophet and you go out and you're declaring the word of the Lord and people respond, you have some form of leadership. It may be a unique form. You're not a king. You're not a priest, right? You're not an elder. But there's something there that is related to a type of leadership. At least it's connected, okay? I can't completely disconnect it from the concept of leadership, at least not in my head. So she was a prophetess and she was sought by the king for direction uh, for direction from God. The These extreme people... Um, that sounds rude and I don't mean it that way. Cause I don't, I don't use the word extremist as a pejorative term, the way that the world does, but people who are on sort of the, the far side of complementarianism or patriarchalist, they, who think that women have nothing to contribute in a public meeting or gathering or a public voice to speak to other people. I mean, God clearly calls and uses women prophets to speak to Kings and, and, and then direct nations. Now, they're not actually the ones making decisions. So prophecy, we'll talk about this more next week. Prophecy is kind of a passive thing. The prophet's given instructions and they're withheld from going beyond those instructions, right? Uh, we read about Nathan, the prophet, Nathaniel, who came to David and he he told him, yeah, go build a temple, do what's in your heart. And God's like, did I tell you that? No, I didn't. Nathan didn't have the authority to make decisions for God. He just would, you know, basically the prophecy has something of a passive element to it. And that might be why it's hard to bridge the gap between a female prophet and like an, the eldership role in the church. Um, but if, if, if you want to shut down women speaking in public entirely um, or a woman having a message from God to share with others, even publicly, I think that's weird. Um, and it, 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 it not, not weird like, you're a weirdo. I mean, it doesn't seem like it fits easily with what we see as our examples in scripture. That's what I mean. Okay, Isaiah's wife. This will only take about 10 seconds. Isaiah's wife in Isaiah 8.3 is also called a prophetess. Why do I mention her? Because there's very few prophetesses. We should just note them all, right? I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. The prophetess, he calls her the prophetess. Now, some say, well, you know, he probably was calling her that because it was his, um, it was his wife and she's the wife of the prophet. So she's called the prophetess, but I don't think they ever used the word like that, or at least I haven't seen evidence that they have. So Isaiah's wife seems to also prophesy. She seems to be a prophet. Um, I wonder how much she prophesied. I wonder how often she did. I wonder how present it was. I wonder if the men prophesying, if their role looked a little different than the women, because the women, we have a couple brief examples, but the men, we have much more. Isaiah prophesied in a, in a, in a bigger way than maybe Amos did, right? Amos had a much smaller ministry with a smaller reach. Um, Nahum, uh, you know, versus Jeremiah. Jeremiah, I mean, he's prophesying to people all over the world. But anyway, I, I just say all that to say, just being a prophet doesn't mean you're everything every prophet ever was. 
there's differences in them. The other one we'll mention is Noadiah. Noadiah, which is in Nehemiah 6.14. She was a prophet, prophet prophetess, profiter. Um, it says, remember Tobiah and Sambalot. Oh my God, according to these things they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. These are actually false prophets. So Noadiah was a female prophet, and but she's a false prophet. <laughs> she's bad. She was hired like to go against um, Nehemiah and the reforms and the rebuilding that they were doing in his time. So um, some would say, uh, you know, Noadiah goes to establish frequency of female prophets. But like how important is frequency of female prophets when we're including false ones? <laughs> like because that's not what God's doing. That's what the enemy's doing. So I, I don't I think we should ignore her completely. I am opposed to thinking that the only um, female prophets, though, are the ones we have listed. So like Isaiah's wife and Miriam. And I, I think that there's probably more that weren't listed. We know there were more prophets than we than we read about in the Bible. Not every prophet and every prophecy was written down to be to become scripture for us. So there may well have been more, but it seems very infrequent. So there's too many possible explanations of this. Um, why weren't there more women prophets? Maybe they were busy. Women just had other jobs to do in life and they were busy taking care of the home and raising kids and all this other stuff. Maybe they were less respected. So God didn't call them as much because it could, people would not have listened as well. That's a just slightly fishy because God called prophets people didn't listen to all the time. <laughs> um, maybe they're not as pre preferred by God. Maybe God just tends to prefer, though not exclusively, tends to prefer using men. Maybe. But these are all just maybes. Like we're just guessing. We don't have anything in scripture that tells us this. The only real conclusion I can have is that God doesn't rule out women being prophets. And in the New Testament, this is even more obvious. That there's female prophets, women who are prophesying in the New Testament. And we'll talk about that next time around. So there's no problem with women being prophets, in my opinion. That's a really big deal. It can't be explained as God only using women when there's no good men. Miriam is not a situation where there's no good men. God didn't have to use her. Hulda was not a situation where there was no good men around. I, I mean, there were other prophets like, okay, so Josiah has to like send out of the, out of Jerusalem to get a word from the Lord. Like it's, it's not like you need Hulda to be there because there's no men around. There were several prophets. So does your church make rules that make it so that a woman can't have like a message for, from God that, that she believes God's given her to share with the people? I think that that would be a mistake based upon what I'm reading here in the Old Testament. Next week, we'll talk about the question of, um, are women prophets proof that we can have women elders? That'll be a big issue we get into next time. Hopefully next week. I don't know if I'll be able to pr prepare all this in that time. Now let's move off of prophecy specifically and look at women in other roles. Um, and we're going to look at priests. That'll be the last one we look at is women who are not priests. <coughs> and um, we're going to look at Deborah, though. We're going to look at Deborah. But first, we'll look at Moxie while I drink some water. <laughs> Thanks for the water break, Moxie. Um, <clears throat> okay, so Deborah, huge debates on Deborah. We're going to spend a while on her because um, we need to. This is a really strong case, a really strong case for at least occasional high level, not highest level, but high level female leadership in the Old Testament in Israel by God's appointment. The fact that all of the judges in the book of Judges, they're all male, that shouldn't be overlooked. Okay, 
there's obviously a preference for, for whatever reason you want to put on there. Culture or God's preference of male leadership. You're, you're just throwing it on there um, unless you have something to confirm it, which the New Testament may confirm that for us. I'm just trying to do things one step at a time. <clears throat> um, so we shouldn't overlook that though, right? Uh, one conclusion some people say is that a female leader is clearly not forbidden, even though it's somewhat extraordinary. So there, this may be a preference for male leadership, but not an exclusion of female leadership. Uh, but the scripture seems more nuanced than that, than, than, excuse me, than either the egalitarian or complementarian views on Deborah. I think both sides tend to stretch Deborah. Well, one wants to stretch Deborah and one wants to smash Deborah down. <laughs> so we're going to look at both of that, both of those sides. <clears throat> okay, so in the book of Judges, uh, to set the scene in 10 seconds or less, Israel has no king because God's supposed to be the king. So there is no highest leader of the land in the sense of like being a king. The next closest thing is a judge. And the judge's role was to be the military leader who would deliver Israel and to be the um, the person who represents God's final choice on issues like a Supreme Court, on issues between people within Israel that can't be decided by their local magistrates. They would go up to a judge and they would decide. She functions a lot like Samuel did. Samuel, who was the final judge, <clears throat> she judges and she prophesies. She does both of these things. Deborah um, doesn't do everything that the judges do. There's something she does not do that all the other judges, mostly all the other judges did. So some complementarians try to say what Deborah did, and, and I'm not going to read all through it. It's, it's Judges chapters 4 and 5. You could read the whole thing on your own right now. Just pause the video. Go read it. Come back. <clears throat> Many of you are familiar with Deborah. So Deborah in her role, um, some say that she just did private counseling and non-public service. And some really push for this. They really push the idea that this was really private counseling. And it wasn't public stuff that she did. Um I think that that's wrong. Uh, let me read to you a little bit from the scripture here. Judges 4 verse 5. I'll just back up one verse so you can get the context. Uh, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel, that's important, came up to her for judgment. This is her normal thing, okay? There's this like moment we talk about in her life where there's this battle that goes on. But before that, <clears throat> she just had a regular routine. She would she would park herself here and people from Israel, meaning all over the country, could come to her for judgment. What would they what would they be coming to her for judgment on? Well, Deuteronomy 17 tells us. So you can understand the role of a judge in Israel. <clears throat> If any case arises requiring a decision between one kind of homicide and another and one kind of legal right and another, one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who was in office in those days. It's interesting that the priests are mentioned too. Let's remember that, remember that for later. And you shall consult them and they shall declare to you the decision. And you should you shall do according to whatever they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, sorry about that. Um, so it's just allergies, guys. Nothing's wrong with me. Um, now, the judge in Israel would would do what you read here on your screen. 
Um, Deborah functions as this kind of judge. This is a really high level function. She would have handled hard cases that local community leaders could not decide, like a like a like a Supreme Court type thing. Hey, we can't handle this issue. It's interesting that the judge is the one who makes the decision, right? But the Levitical priests are also there, probably because it's their job to teach the law. So the judge was supposed to be surrounded by priests and the priest could, could explain, oh no, this is unclean and that's not unclean and this is how it's written. They're supposed to be the experts on those things. Remember that it's important when we get to some claims later on. So I, I, I think you can't really call this private counseling. Like they were to handle private counseling. And I'm like, no, man, you, when you go to the elders of your town and they go, oh, this case is too hard for us, go see Deborah, she'll answer and decide. And then you have to live with her decision whether you like it or not. That's not private counseling. This is like public magisterial stuff. Well, it's kind of a big deal. Um, <clears throat> so Deborah functions as a judge. It's a big deal. In um, one complementarian source that I read, they said that Deborah wasn't appointed by God. The way that they handle Deborah, because she's got this like authority that that has authority over men, or at least people who come for decisions. Not authority kind of over everybody, but just the decisions that get passed to her. But still, that's a big deal. So one complementarian source says, hey, Deborah wasn't appointed by God or raised up by God because it doesn't say so specifically. When you look at judges, it doesn't tell you that Deborah was actually appointed by God. It just says she was judging Israel at the time. That's all it says. Then um, they said something about her sitting under the palm tree, meaning something weird and wacky about like um, it being like a, a worship related issue. It was like, no, like, dude, you sit under trees because there's shade. <laughs> the reason why the location is mentioned is because people had to leave their towns and go to her. So this is false though. Was Deborah a legitimate judge? I've only heard this from one source and it was not anybody I, I want to quote because they're not, they're just a random blog, right? But I want to deal with arguments that come up. Uh, judges 2.16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of, their, out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges. The context of um, Judges 2, 16, is it's the introduction to the book. And the whole introduction to the book is like, hey, God raised up these judges. In verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies in all the days of the judge. This actually fits. It, it's two things. It's a blanket statement that <clears throat> the people in the judges in the book of Judges are all raised up by God, right? Even the loser, Samson. Um, <clears throat> in addition to that, we have the fact that Deborah's role, her life, fits the pattern that we see in Judges 2, except for one piece. We'll talk about that. So people sin and are affected by enemies, afflicted by their enemies. Uh, the second thing is the judge is raised up. That's Deborah. And then deliverance happens, and the deliverance lasts for that judge's lifetime. We see this in Judges 4.31, where it talks about Deborah, how the peace that they had lasted. Um, 5.31, just give me a second. How the peace that, that they got during her lifetime lasted her lifetime, right? The land had rest for 40 years after Deborah sings her song. <clears throat> and so that's, I think that's significant. Um, Deborah was actually a rare judge in that she didn't blow it. <laughs> as far as we know, she didn't blow it. She seems like she was solid and good all the way through. This is a pretty rare thing for the book of Judges. So yeah, God raised her up. Uh, God intended for her to be there. And she has some leadership in men in men's lives when it comes to judging these things. She's not a town leader. 
She's not deciding the direction of a town, the civic duties of the people, that kind of thing. She's deciding these cases, though. <clears throat> All right. She also gives commands to Barak and the troops of Israel as a prophet slash leader. This is, this is where the egalitarians are going to come in and say, Deborah gives commands to leaders of Israel. So what does that make her? If you're telling the leaders what to do, you're like the leader leader, right? That's kind of the implication. Let's read the text and then we'll talk quotes from, um, we'll start with Amy Bird. Judges 4, 6. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. <clears throat> um, so she commands, sort of commands. Okay, it's, it's a little bit nuanced, but it's definitely there. There's definitely, she's the conduit through which God's telling the leader of the military, Barak, what to do. Let's go to Amy Bird as she talks about how she interprets this passage. Um, right I have a lot of quotes, so I have to be finding them. Ah, there it is. Amy Bird on um, page 78 of her book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, says Barak couldn't run down to the local Walmart in Bethel and buy a 599 Bible. Revelation wasn't complete at this time. They had the books of Moses, but those would not have been accessible to the general public. They would they would have known the Ten Commandments, but other than that, where would one go for the word of God? They could on, go only one place. Deborah, she was the word of God to Israel. No. Um, even, even in the book of Judges, it says that the priests, the Levites, would be alongside a judge to help because they were bringing the knowledge of the word of God is what is implied there. The priests were a source. They were spread throughout the land of Israel, <coughs> pardon me, teaching the law. Um, they, the, remember the priests had no, like the Levites didn't have land of their own, like a quadrant of Israel. They were spread in cities, cities of refuge throughout the land of Israel so they could be accessible to the people. So they could give instructions and understanding of the law and the message and the meaning of it all. This was like this was the priest's job. The judge's job was not to deliver the word of the Lord primarily. Like there may have been revelations from God that they give prophetically, but the word of the Lord, like the written word in a sense, was was shared and expounded by the Levites. Um, <clears throat> the judges only brought occasional prophetic messages, not, not Bible studies. And they were partnered with Levites, even in the text of scripture we read. So this preaches well. Deborah was the word of God to Israel. Like that preaches well, but... So it's not true. Like this is, and this I hate to say it, guys. Um, I I do actually hate to say it. The book, recovering from biblical manhood and womanhood, is it preaches well, but it's not true. Like this, it just continually distorts things, but in powerful, heartwarming ways. And people who fall in love with it and feel like it's bringing you help, you're going to be offended that I'm telling you this. I think it's full of inaccuracies and problems, um, unfortunately. Um, and this has come from somebody who wanted to become egalitarian at the beginning of my study. But I just found myself more firmly complementarian by the end. And maybe that's my bias uh, that, I, that I don't know of. I'm just being honest about my opinions here. I wanted. I wanted to. It's egalitarian scholars that made me stay complementarian. Um, that sounds mean. I don't mean it that way. <laughs> I want you to know the lay of the land, which is why I'm bringing you quotes from these same scholars who are influencing large numbers of people so you can see 
for yourself that there are some issues here. <clears throat> Sometimes people like Amy Bird are so good at preaching that it makes them not very good at teaching the Bible because it's so easy to make it say whatever it is that they want it to say. And I think that that, that happens throughout her book. Um, her book, it more, more so than most of the resources I was reading. I'm, I'm sorry, Amy Bird, nothing personally. I don't, no bitterness towards you at all. And I don't care that you're a woman. I'm talking about the handling of scripture. <clears throat> all right, so did Deborah, here's the debate point for Deborah. Did Deborah command Barak or not? Um, in the text, it says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel commanded? And so some say, well, <clears throat> this isn't really her. She's not telling them, go go get your men. It's her saying, God said, go get your men. So it does seem to me like it makes sense that Barak already knew this possibly. Like he already knew that God had commanded him and he wasn't listening and Deborah reminds him of it. But if you want to use this to say that, that Deborah didn't offer commands, like she was being very careful to not feel um, like she was forcefully telling someone what to do. Like she was trying to kind of create separation between the command and her, and her by saying, hasn't the Lord said, if you read judges 414, it just has her saying, Deborah said to Barak up for this is the day in which the Lord has given you Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? She uses her own words here. She doesn't say, hasn't the Lord said she's like, get up and go. She does lean on God's authority. She does refer to God's authority here. But <clears throat> this feels even more commanding to me. So as a prophet, she relays God's instructions. She's not making a call. She's not the one deciding when Barak should go. So that's where her leadership's different than like a typical um, government leader. She's not deciding this should happen, that should happen. She's relaying what God has commanded. There is a difference there. I just want to acknowledge it. Um, <clears throat> so maybe this is part of the reason why prophets, women being prophets, isn't really the trump card that some egalitarians want it to be, but it means something that complementarians shouldn't forget. Now, the area where Deborah is different than every other judge <clears throat> is that every other judge, pretty much almost every judge, leads the army. They're military leaders. They don't just judge cases, right, and have words from the Lord on occasion. They actually lead the military. So the question is, why doesn't she lead the military? Is God deliberately restricting the authority that Deborah has as judge? She could do it, but there's some restrictions because he doesn't want her actually in that leadership role leading the military. Um, <clears throat> the egalitarian response could be that culture required it. Like the, the culture, they wouldn't have listened. The, the military is not going to follow a woman. They're not really going to do that. And that's possible, but it just shows that I'm just saying Deborah was different in an interesting way than the other judges. No other judge seems to have somebody else leading the army. No, nobody does. The closest is Samuel, but that's after he anoints um, Saul. And now Saul leads the army and Samuel takes a back seat. He's not really judging Israel anymore. <clears throat> so that's an interesting thing to think about. Um, yeah. So what are, what are we to make of the, of the following though? Here's, here's where a lot of people hang up on, rightly so, on the topic of Deborah. It's Barak's response to Deborah. Deborah's like, Barak, get the army and go out there and fight. And Deborah goes, I won't go unless you come, Deborah. I need you. And <clears throat> let's read it. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. 
<clears throat> so the story goes on, right? And Beric routs the enemy, but the leader of the enemy, Sisera, he gets away and he goes and hides in the tent of this woman, JL. And JL, she knows he's the enemy and all this. And she's alone, like wherever her husband is. He's probably on the battlefield or something. Um, <clears throat> she she uh, she brings him in, welcomes him in. Sisera, come in. And Sisera comes into her home. And many of you know the story. He says to her, I need some water. He's dehydrated from all the battle. He's hiding, he's thirsty, and he's tired. She gives him milk instead, warm milk, actually. And so he drinks the milk instead of the water. He gets even more sleepy. He falls asleep, and JL went softly to him, the scripture says, with a tent peg, and drove it into his skull with a spike, with a, with a hammer. So she hammered a spike through his head and killed him. And then JL is sung about in the, in the following song in Judges 5 as being like a, a big hero in Israel. So the question we have about the passage we just read, these verses where Barak says like, I'm not going with you. And then he's kind of rebuked for it. He goes, I won't go with it unless you come with me. And he's rebuked for it. The question we have is, is Barak being rebuked for not stepping up as a man? Is it important for God to remind us, even with Deborah as a judge, that there was a man who should have been leading but refused? Is that the context we're seeing in, in, in Deborah's story? There's an egalitarian interpretation, and we'll go back to Amy Bird for that. Um, here's Amy Bird on this topic. She says, Barak has earned a bad reputation in the church for this response. Many of us have been taught that he's cowardly to insist that Deborah come along. But these words are wise and full of faith. They're wise and full of faith. Let's, let's go, let's go back to the scripture and we'll read the rest of her <clears throat> statement about this. Barak said, if you will not go with, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. God told me to go, but I won't. Those are wise and full of faith. Like you're just not reading carefully the text. And she said, I will go with you. Right. But, but there's a rebuke in it. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. This is Amy Bird's interpretation of Sisera being sold into the hands of a woman and Barak not getting the glory. She spins it as like a, a good thing about Barak. Um, here it is. Amy Bird on page 79 of her book says, Deborah's response that she will gladly go, but that a woman is going to have the honor of taking down Sisera is not a rebuke. Barak wasn't after his own glory. He sings along with Deborah glorifying God for the victory. I mean, that, again, it preaches well. It feels good. I like it. But it's not true. <laughs> so um, to show you what the shame was, let's consider the passage again. Was it that Barak wouldn't move forward without the protection of a woman? Was that the shame? Was it that Barak simply hesitated to have the faith to go forward without extra insurance? Was that the shame? We have to assume our view there. But it's shame on Barak because he his his glory is handed to a woman. Now, you could say that God, um, uh, you know, God gets all the glory and, and that's what Amy Bird leans on. God gets the glory, not Barak. Barak didn't want the glory. He wanted it. But this isn't the context of the passage. Surely God gets all the glory. But in Judges 5, when we get the song, the entire chapter, that's a whole song about what happened in Judges 4. There is one phrase about Barak in verse 12. It says, arise, Barak. Lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. There is one verse about Barak. There is a whole section in the song about Jael. Right? Verse 6 calls it the time or the days of Jael. Verses 24 through 27 calls her the most blessed of women, Jael. And it, and it recounts what she did. And so 
the biblical context is not Barak didn't get the glory. God did. No, the, the biblical context is the credit, not the worship of God, but the credit for the final victory over the leader of the enemy goes to JL because Barak was being a coward. Like, and that's it. He didn't have faith to step out without extra insurance and extra support from other people. He would not step up. So at minimum, I think we need to conclude some things at minimum in their culture. It's embarrassing to Barak that the woman, uh, that a woman beats Sisera. That's embarrassing to him. It's glory to, to jail, man. She's lifted up even higher. Like she looks great because of this. It's Barak that looks bad. Is it God's commentary against women leaders though? I don't know. I, I think it's just God's commentary that Barak should have stepped up. Like it's not commentary against women leaders as much as it is commentary about Barak not stepping up. So here's some conclusions I have on Deborah before I move on to our next topic, <clears throat> royal women, women in the, in the royal court. Um, Deborah was a leader. She was not a priest. She was not a king or queen. She was not a military leader, but she was a judge. She was also a prophet. And if I could try to test one last claim that the, um, that the w women are leading only when men won't lead or aren't available to do so. Well, there, there are some indications of this in the text. There's male abandonment of responsibility with Barak not wanting to go forward, but it's qualified. What I mean is this, um, here's the balance. Here's where I think egalitarians and, and complementarians both get Deborah wrong often. Okay. Um, Deborah has less leadership in some ways than the other judges. This is emphasized in her, in her interactions with Barak and how she didn't lead the military like other judges to. In, in her song in Judges 5, she calls herself a mother, not a leader, but she does call other people leaders in Israel. So that's interesting. Um, another point is she's deeply concerned with the lack of leadership in Israel stepping up. That's the whole theme in Judges 4 and 5. It really is a theme. Lack of leaders stepping up to the task. Also, the way she chastens Barak for not stepping up and says his glory will be given to a woman, that does seem thematic. There's like a theme going on here of people not stepping up and not having faith to take the land and dwell, dwell in the land and trust in God to give them the strength. So I'd say egalitarians using the passage to refute normal distinctions between men and women based on Deborah does seem like a stretch. But the complementarians also reach too far, I think. So Deborah in particular, and here's the part where I disagree with complementarians a lot. In her role as governmental judge, there does not seem to be any overstepping of anything at all. Deborah is never never says, Barak, you should have been the judge. Where have you been this whole time? He's rebuked for not leading the military like he should. Deborah has been a judge for years, and she seems to continue as a judge for her for her lifetime. It's going on for a very long period of time. And she's never rebuked for it in any way, shape, or form. She's one of the best judges there are. She's one of the only ones that doesn't have like a terrible ending, you know? Like look at Gideon, you know? All their stories, Gideon or Jephthah, you're like, yes, yay, oh, oh no. I mean, this is, that's that's the story arc of all of them showing you we need, ultimately we need Jesus, who's the perfect one. Um, so women in politics. Can women be in politics to have some measure of authority that's over men? Um, it may not be typical, but it doesn't seem ruled out by the Bible. And Deborah seems to be a shining example of a woman doing that. How does it apply to women as apostles or biblical elders in churches? We'll get to that next time. All right, <clears throat> royal women. Let's talk about the royal women. There aren't too many of them, and they won't take nearly as long as Deborah. So the first one we'll talk about is Jezebel. Um, 
Now, most egalitarians do not talk about Jezebel for obvious reasons. Jezebel was a horrible person. She was very evil. She's like stands for what's wrong in the apostasy and the, uh, the spiritual adultery of Israel. Um, but one egalitarian, and, and for the life of me, I could not find which one said this. It wasn't Belleville. It wasn't Payne. It wasn't Amy Bird. It wasn't Craig Keener. It, it, it wasn't Mary Conway. Like it wasn't. I, I can't figure out. I've listened and read so many things that I just can't find it. So one rare egalitarian says that uh, Jezebel ruled with more authority than her husband Ahab. That's a big claim. She ruled with more authority than her husband Ahab. So here we have a, a royal hierarchy in Israel where the woman is in charge and the husband is submitting, not in the marriage, but in the rulership of the country. So this egalitarian said, yes, she was evil. But her role was accepted. And that's their big that's their big case. Her role was accepted. Therefore, there's no issue of the absolute highest role being held by a woman in Israel, even if other roles, like say Deborah's role, could be held. So 1 Kings 21 8. As always, this is there's no magic here. Like I just you just open the Bible and you read the story of Jezebel and you look for something that might weigh in on the issue. That's it. This is this is this is Bible study. And you got a Bible. <clears throat> so 1 Kings 21, 8, it says, So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders of, the, of who lived with Naboth in his city. The This is where um, Jezebel knows that her husband uh, wants, Ahab wants these, this, this vineyard that Naboth, this other guy owns, and he's going to abuse his role as king to take it. Uh, he doesn't want to do it himself. And so what ends up happening is Jezebel's like, I'll get, I'll get it for you. Don't worry, Ahab, I'll get it for you. Here's what I noticed about this. Did you notice it as I read? She wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. Um, if she was ruling with more authority than Ahab, this is not necessary. Um, it'd be him who'd be using her name and her seal. What she wants to do is take royal action, official royal action in the name of, of her husband because she doesn't have that authority. That's what that ends up coming down to. So Jezebel actually didn't have that kind of authority, that egalitarian whose name I cannot find is stretching the text. Um, that's not what it says. What was Jezebel? She was a cult leader. She had hundreds of false prophets and led Israel astray and tried to kill um, and manipulate and, and lie. And so she's not an example of anything for us. Um, so yeah. Another <clears throat> royal woman is Athaliah. Um, Athaliah, let me show you what Linda Belleville says about Athaliah, and then we will consider her. <coughs> okay, women in ancient, the ancient Near East provided political leadership. This is Linda Belleville in um, page 52 of the Two Views book. Some were heads of state. Athaliah, for example, ruled the land of Israel from 842 to 836. Now, when you read these summaries, <clears throat> and Linda Belville is like the source, for, again, for a lot of scholars on these topics. When you read these summaries and you're like, wow, I mean, there was a woman who was a head of state. So, like, what are we, why are we even complaining about anything? Obviously, this was not an issue for Israel. Um, let's just read the passage. Okay, so <clears throat> 2 Kings 11. It's just four verses. Let's read about Athaliah and say, if you had read Linda's book, that's all she says about Athaliah. If you read her book would you have had a correct understanding of scripture? First Kings, um, I thought it was second. Yeah, it is second Kings. 
Here we go. Four verses. Second <clears throat> Kings 11. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. So she starts by committing mass murder. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. So Athaliah murders <clears throat> all the children of the king so she can try to take the throne. One gets away. And she put him in his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. I mean, if Athaliah is a literal murderous usurper who's going against God's clear desires for the ruling of the nation, then we probably shouldn't use her as an example of an accepted female head of state, as Linda Belleville has done. An evil ruler and murderer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but she was, a, she was one who reigned over the land. Like... We can't really learn much from this. She usurped authority. It's seen as bad all the way through. There's nothing here about it being like a, a counterexample to male leadership in some way. <clears throat> not that we have to have them, but I'm just saying this one is not it. Um, uh, <clears throat> another one is Esther. Um, Esther's a little difficult to parse out because of two things. Esther's in a foreign land. Esther, as you read through the book of Esther, I'll assume you're somewhat familiar with it. But Esther, she ends up being the queen um, the, the one of the king's women, right? And she <clears throat> is the replacement for another queen. And it's it's a whole weird, crazy, creepy story, actually, to be honest. The Jews almost get all slaughtered, but they get rescued and partly through God's, much, a lot of it's through God's work through Esther. But the two issues here is that she's in a foreign land. I guess three issues. She's in a foreign land, not Israel. And so we're not really getting God's sort of instituting of authorities. Um, she's also following Mordecai, her, <clears throat> her, uh, her, I think it's her uncle. I'm, I'm trying to remember. And she follows his instructions all the way through. She always does what he suggests. He's really leading her through this. And Mordecai is the behind-the-scenes hero in some ways. Esther is as well. She's the one who puts her neck on the line. Well, Mordecai almost gets his neck on the line too. So it's really both of them together. Um, still, she does carry some authority. She's seen as a hero. But the third issue is this, is that all of the authority she has is only by command of the king. She's not actually sitting in a regular office and position of authority. She just appeals to the king and the king makes an a command based on, on her integrity and her, her good character and all that other sort of stuff. So uh, Esther doesn't seem super relevant to, to the issue of women in like as heads of state. I'll put it that way. Um, there are some others that that egalitarians will try to try to present. Um, Linda Belleville says that there were women who were advisors to heads of state. Now keep in mind this is the this is on page fifty three of two views. Advisors to heads of state, and then she gives a couple examples. The first one is the wise woman of Tekoa in Second Samuel fourteen. And because I really want to get to the priest stuff, I'll just mention briefly. Um, this is a woman who Joab uses. He sends her to David. To, to like request for David to allow his son to come back. Uh, Belleville calls her his son Absalom. Um, Belleville calls her an advisor to a head of state. That's a bit loaded because advisor is a position and this woman had no position. She literally just learned, memorized the words Joab told her to say, went to David and said the words. And Belleville calls her a head a advisor to head of state. Let me take you to one verse that shows this. Second Samuel 2.14. Oddly, I'm I'm more bothered by the misuse of scripture than I am by any disagreements people have on women in ministry. <laughs> um, 
And Abner said to Joab, um, oh, that's the wrong verse. 14.3. Well, how did I get? I don't know how I know. Because I talk and read at the same time. That's how. <clears throat> Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. She comes to the king. She falls on the ground. Oh, save me, O oh king. I have this trouble. Oh, all these problems in my life. And she's not an advisor to a head of state. She's a woman appealing to the authority of the king for help. But it's all a metaphor for other things. Anyway. This is, this is a waste of time. Um, there's also a wise woman. That's a, there's a little bit more we can get from this in Linda Belleville points out in 2 Samuel 20, verses 16 through 22. This woman, her city's under siege for harboring a rebel and Joab is going to destroy the city and she represents the entire city in a, in a, a, a deal, a peacemaking deal. She represents the whole, uh, I say state, uh, town. So she barters with Joab and she offers the head of the rebel. Um, I'll just read the passage because it's pretty short. So this is in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verses 16 through 22. <clears throat> then a wise woman called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her and the woman said, are you Joab? He answered, I am. Notice that she is called a wise woman. Just point that out. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them, let them, but ask counsel at Ahab. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. I'm reasonable. Hey, I'm, I'm here to talk peace to you. Uh, you seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Nice old lady. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So this woman, she represents the city, like as far as kind of like trying to get peace. She then goes to the people of the city and she's again called wise, or it says they listen to her wisdom. She went to all the people. So she talks to the people and she gets them to go. Um, to do this, to, to give up the, the rebel. Um, so is she an, an advisor to a head of state? That's my question. Linda Belleville says she's an advisor, quote, advisor to heads of state, advisors to heads of state. Her city's under siege, um, but she's not in it. As far as we can tell, she's wise, but she's not called a leader, an elder or, or something like See, when you're an advisor to head of state, it involves some sort of, I think, continual position, at least for a season, at least for like months or years. You're an you're you're an official. The, the 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 head of state, the king, is like, here are my advisors, and you're in that group, <laughs> not not a random person in a moment of crisis. So she wasn't in an advisor position who was sought for counsel by a head of state. She comes up and goes, "Hey, are you Joab?" <laughs> uh, this is this is. Typical conflation, I think, a typical stretching. But even though you can't call her an advisor to a head of state, you should conclude something interesting. She had the authority to speak for the whole town in negotiating peace during this crisis. I mean, even if it was just, I mean, the way, you know, sometimes when there's chaos, someone just gets up and they just take authority. 
doesn't mean they're in a position regularly with that group of people, but they just come in and take it. Um, and that's kind of what this woman did. She just come in and, and just grabbed it and took it. And it's, I think, a good thing. I think she's a she's called a wise woman. She Her counsel is referred to as wisdom. So she's not called a leader or an elder. She's called a wise woman. Uh, she's a woman who exercises political power in a moment of crisis, but may not have had a regular political position, but probably had a lot of respect in her community. So it, it doesn't really weigh in a whole lot, except for those who want to say that women can't do it. You can't do anything. Are you about to say or do anything that might imply that you have any authority in any man's life? You shouldn't do it. If, if that's your belief, then I think scripture seems to very much refute it. The question is what limits there are. So can I say that women holding political power, a judge, a queen, or a town representative doesn't seem to be a problem? Well, sort of. Um, it seems, does seem limited in some ways, at least by example. These are just examples. These aren't instructions. Okay, so just by example. It does seem like it's occasionally limited or usually limited, or probably I should say always limited. Um, the complementary and pushback on this is that it's not typical. Um, that, you know, women, just because there are the, just because Deborah was a judge doesn't mean women should all go out and try to like jump into these roles. Um, or they might say it's only during times of crisis. And I'm like, well, it's not only during, it is in times of crisis on occasion, but not only, and it's not only when men abandon their roles. So my point is it's not it's not a restriction we should dump upon the people of God. I hope that I made that clear. I'm sharing a lot. I'm talking a lot of things. I'm saying a lot of stuff. A bunch of words coming out. All right. Now let me talk to probably one of the biggest issues, uh, biggest points I hear from more of the popular level, the pop level complementarian patriarchal side, um, which those are two different categories. I'm just going to clump them together for a second. There's a verse in Isaiah 3.12 that says, according to compliment some more patriarchalists that women um, are all women as rulers is always considered a bad thing in God's opinion, in God's opinion, <laughs> not just in our opinions. So Isaiah three twelve is the verse. And I spent a big chunk of time on this. My people, infants are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, your guides mislead you. And they've swallowed up the course of your paths. Okay. We're going to dig deep on this, but we're going to do it fast because I still have to talk about priests. And that's probably the most important part of this whole thing. So infants are their oppressors. Women rule over them. First, there is a textual issue here. Um, and the textual issue here is this word women. <clears throat> it, it might, and I say this carefully, it might be that the word there is creditors, right? Lenders, money lenders, and not women. Um, the reason for this is because in Hebrew, the words are super close. It's only the vowels that are different. Uh, the word for creditors and the word for women are the same <clears throat> consonants, but just different vowels. And so they are very close together. So the NET Bible, the Good News Bible, they both translate this as creditors. The Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament also has creditors. Um, <clears throat> so it might be creditors, but most translations do go with women for this verse. What I would say is this, um, when you have a questionable passage, you don't want to, you don't want to put too much, I say questionable as in like, it could be either of those words. If you're on the fence and you're not sure which translation it should be, then you don't want to base an entire doctrine on that one word. Like that's, that's just a little bit dangerous because of our lack of understanding. <coughs> Pardon me. So verse 14, contextually might give some support that it's actually money lenders who are ruling over them. 
Um, because money lenders, when you, when you loan someone money, they become your rulers. That's the whole theme of the slavery in, in Exodus is that the people you borrow money from end up owning you. Well, verse 14, it says the Lord will enter into judgment, just two verses down, with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you ha who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your house. This could be him criticizing the leaders of Israel for being money lenders. They're the wealthy leaders. They're lending money to the people and then the people become in bondage to them and they're charging interest. So they're, so the spoil of the poor is in their house. So, um, yeah, I mean, it could, I'm saying that there's a real possibility that it's not even about women. <laughs> That's the real, it's possible. But because the vast majority of translations take, vast, vast majority take women here as the reading, let's ask what, how do we interpret that? Does it mean that women leading is generally bad and it's a punishment on a community when women lead? Some say it does. Um, I, don't, I don't think so personally. I think that's kind of an extreme view. So here are some points <clears throat> that we should include in any interpretation of Isaiah 312. Uh, women were not in official rulership positions at the time as far as we know. There was no women, there weren't any actual women leaders at the times. In fact, a contemporary of, of, of Isaiah, Micah, if you just read through all of Micah, which I did just, just to get context for Isaiah 3.12, <clears throat> he's a prophet contemporary to Isaiah, and he points about, he talks about the leaders of Israel, but they're always male when he talks about them. So they're, they're not literally women, is my point. Isaiah 3.12 says women rule over them. He doesn't mean actual women. He's, if, it's, if, if women's the right translation, he's calling them the men, women. That's a different spin on it. We should just be aware of. Isaiah one twenty three confirms this. Isaiah one twenty three, your princes, male, are rebel are rebels and companions of thieves. This is um, this is male leadership that are that are being rebuked in Isaiah chapter one. So, what, but then why are they being called women? <laughs> like, what's why are they being called women? Um, Another point here, though, is to support this uh, metaphor view is that infants are certainly not oppressing them. Like they don't actually have babies ruling over them or even like a 10 year old that are their leaders oppressing them. What he's saying is your leaders have become like infants and like women. OK, and now a lot of the audience is offended. But I don't care. Um, I want to just understand the text in context and people who are trigger happy. Um, you're, you're not going to watch this video anyway. So what am I worried about? <laughs> um, so infants were not ruling them. Um, so why would I think women were ruling them? So this isn't actually about actual literal women leaders in the same verse. You can see that, um, this part of the prophecy here is about current rulers, not some future rulers. So it's not like Israel's going to have their leaders taken away and they'll be replaced with infants and women. It's about current rulers. This is happening right now. This is what's happening at the moment. You, you read the verse. In the, um, which creates kind of an irony because earlier in, in Isaiah 3, he complained, he talks about how he's going to pull these leaders away and then other random people, they're going to grab anybody to lead them. But their current leaders are, are lame too. Sound familiar, guys? Your current leaders are lame. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, all right, where am I at? Um, Okay, another reason to think this is not about literal women leaders is that women are specifically rebuked in chapter three in detail in the same context. As you as you go on, you got a bunch of details about the daughters of Zion and all the things they're doing wrong, but leading is not one of them. They're not leading anybody. Okay, so I'm just suggesting here, it's metaphor is the point. Um, so the only point then <clears throat> that we have to wrestle with is why were, why were women leaders considered a bad thing? 
Why is it considered negative? Um, it could be that it's bad because women aren't supposed to lead. That's one option. It could be that it's bad because women aren't desired to lead by the people. So God's using language for the people to know, hey, you wouldn't want you know women leading you in their patriarchal culture. And so your leaders are the people that you don't want leading you. It could also be um, that uh, the only, or hold on, I'm just trying to find my notes here. Um, okay, so it's, sorry, I just I just got a little confused in my own notes. So the only point, oh, by the way, my notes are going to be available on my website, biblethinker.org. You go to not just the search page, but click the video, open the open the video on the big channel, the big page for the video on, on biblethinker.org, and you'll see a, a, a link for the notes for this series in particular. So the only point that relates to this, to my current study, is this. Are women leaders of government generally a bad thing in God's eyes? Why aren't women considered good for leadership of countries and towns? If if that's how we interpret this. Um, here's a few possibilities. <clears throat> One, they're not supposed to because of role distinctions. That is possible. That would explain it. But it's not expressed. Isaiah 3.12 doesn't really give us hardly any details at all. And we do have things like Deborah. And we don't have anything negative about Deborah having a a real leadership role. Okay, so that's that's interesting. Um, that would make it genetic. Um, this would be this would be like saying in Isaiah's time, you have leaders that were never supposed to be leaders because of some problem genetically. Um, here's why I reject this view: is because the Davi the Davidic lineage is still intact in Israel. When Isaiah writes, you still have Davidic leaders, like their actual sons, and it's their conduct, not their genealogy, that's the problem. There's nothing about their biology that's an issue here. So calling the women to say that they are biologically not supposed to be leaders doesn't fit the situation. Another point could be that they're not respected. Women just generally won't be respected. Not that they shouldn't be, but they won't be. In their culture, they're not respected. So it's like saying um, your leaders are, are being fools. Your leaders are not being respectful. And that's possible. That's possible. But there's another possibility, and that is <clears throat> that they aren't trained and experienced. Um, women were not trained to be leaders. And leaders leadership takes a skill. Okay, Everybody thinks they know how to run the government. But nobody does. <laughs> not even the people in the government <laughs> a lot of the time. Um, it does take a skill and a knowledge and a capacity to do these things. You can't just do it because you like you listen to a conservative or liberal commentary one time and now you know how everything runs. Um, so it's entirely possible that the statement is women just aren't trained for these roles. Like everybody knows that the life of a woman does not include in a patriarchal culture these types of leadership roles. It's a very rare exception like Deborah where someone does. So when I say women are your leaders, I think that Isaiah is just saying they're no good at it. They're not fit. They're not skilled. Um, I think that's what it's saying. And that everybody at the time understood. And people today just get mad about this topic without thinking about it. So it's hard for us to read Isaiah. Um, so finally, I'll just say, don't base a view on an unclear passage. Um, it can be explained in egalitarian or complementarian ways fairly. Fairly. And so I, I don't, like I look at Isaiah 3.12 and I think, I don't think this has a lot to say about the topic. And those who want to interpret the entire Bible through the lens of women will be your leaders as a, as a negative thing are just pushing way too hard on a, on a passage that has um, not very much details in it. Okay, let's talk about the priesthood. Our last topic for today. I hope you are ready. I'm ready. Women were priests in other cultures. Did you know this? 
In ancient Israel, there was no female priests, but in other pagan nations, there were. They're forbidden under the law from being priests. That's interesting. A complementarian view, right? I'll tell you both sides, is that this is because the highest spiritual authority role in office was kept for men. And that the New Testament continues this with women not being elders, even though we're all priests. I'll get to that later on. Um, the, the egalitarians have two alternate views, which I'll briefly run through. One of them, which is incredibly popular, and people say it all the time. Um, you could get it from Craig Keener. He says it's because women were ceremonially unclean. So a woman couldn't be a priest because she had regular ceremonial uncleanness. And the priest has to be clean. This is a huge, huge issue. You can't go into the tabernacle area like without clean, cleanness, ceremonial cleanliness. Uh, let me give you a quote from Linda Belleville <clears throat> on why women couldn't be Levitical priests. She echoes the same kind of thing Craig Keener says. <clears throat> the only exception was the Levitical priesthood where purity laws precluded Jewish women from serving in certain ceremonial roles due to uncleanliness or uncleanness related to childbirth and menstruation. Um, <clears throat> this is actually a little bit, she's obfuscating a bit, right? Because she's, she's not making it clear because <laughs> I don't want to obfuscate by using the word obfuscate. Uh, but she's not making things clear because she says they were kept from certain ceremonial roles. But like they couldn't be priests. That's like the role. Like that's a big, like that's just called certain ceremonial roles. Like they couldn't be priests. Like that's, why are we not just being transparent with the text? Um, but her conclusion is it's because of uncleanness related to childbirth and menstru menstruation. There's no scripture reference here. There's no note. I have a note in my Kindle on that passage, but there's nothing there from her. So women had regular uncleanness. Is that enough to explain their monthly cycles? Does that explain why they couldn't serve as priests? Um, here's several reasons why I reject this view. <clears throat> One, and this is the view almost all egalitarians take. There is no scripture that says that this is the case. There's no verse in the Bible anywhere that even suggests that women couldn't be priests because of monthly cycles. I don't see it anywhere. That's a, that's a big deal. Now, it doesn't totally defeat them, but it would help if it was there, right? All right. Also, two, women regularly do things that unclean people can't do. They participate in worship music. They do community gatherings. They can get, they can go into the temple courtyard, like especially before New Testament times when things had changed. But during this time, yes, they could. Feast day celebrations, um, Passover preparation. They did all these things and an unclean person couldn't do any of those things. Women do things unclean people can't do all the time. Why on earth would I say that the reason why they couldn't be priests was because they were seen as unclean all the time? It doesn't make any sense. Um, they did have regular uncleanness due to monthly cycles, but it's easy enough for them to not serve at that time. So here's point three, why I reject this view. Priests, men were unclean on occasion as well, right? If they touched an unclean thing, if they had a wound, if they had a sickness, if they had bodily issues that do happen on a regular basis to human beings, they would, they would not be able to serve in the tabernacle during that season. And then afterwards they could serve. So, I reject this explanation. Like, I just don't see any merit in it at all. Everybody agrees. If you're egalitarian, you will, you, this is your explanation, but I'm giving you like five, four or five reasons why I think it doesn't fit scripture. And you don't have a single positive verse that says it does. You're, you're forcing that conclusion onto the text. There's some reason why women can't do this. 
And that doesn't seem to be it. Philip Payne, on the other hand, he comes up with a totally new reason. I've never heard someone else say this. I'm sure someone else has. I haven't read everybody in the world. Um, but he comes up with a reason I have uh, only heard from him. Um, and he, again, is a top <clears throat> egalitarian scholar. And here's what he says. The only social or religious position of significance that women are not recorded in the Old Testament as, hold, as holding is the office of a priest. Um, I mean, that's not true. Like, well, none of them were kings. <laughs> so like, I mean, there's none of them rolled, ruled in that kind of capacity. But anyway, uh, the most obvious reason for this is the association of priestesses in some heathen cults with prostitutes, which Deuteronomy 23, 17 prohibits. I'm always sketchy when people say obvious and then they're saying things that like aren't, don't seem, I mean, some things are obvious, but this doesn't seem obvious. And it's interesting that like no other egalitarian I read and I read a lot said this. Um, but he says the most obvious reason is God doesn't want temple prostitutes. So women, you can't be priests because it will, it will end up, I know Israel, they're scummy. And which is true, which is true as far as we're humans, we're all like that. They're going to turn you into female prostitutes and the temple is going to turn into like a, a brothel and that, okay. In a sense, Hey, that sounds legitimate. He even has a verse behind it. Deuteronomy 23, 17, All right, We don't want women as prostitutes. Let's test this theory that women couldn't be priests for the reason that they would have become prostitutes. Deuteronomy 23, 17, it says, none of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. Oh, never mind. <laughs> so what I'm saying here is guys, there is, okay. Philip's concern, Philip Payne, his statement is God doesn't want women is priests because of the tendency to turn them into prostitutes. So the solution God comes up with is women can't be priests. But if God does the same thing with men, then that doesn't work. There were male prostitutes as well as, as part of the temple priests. And they, yeah, they did their services and all that kind of thing. And so God says to both to, in Israel, 20 to Israel in Deuteronomy 23, 17, I don't want women prostitutes. I don't want men prostitutes. God isn't concerned with them being priests. He's concerned with them being prostitutes. That's the idea. He, he doesn't allow men to be that, but he still lets them be priests. He applies it both on both sides. So this is not a gender specific issue. If a command to, here's the conclusion If a command that says men, you can't be prostitutes. If that's enough and you can still allow them to be priests, then why would that command keep women from being priestesses? It doesn't make any sense. It seems forced. Here's my conclusions on the priest issue so far. Uncleanness and prostitution, the two egalitarian options I've heard, they both seem forced. Do you feel it? Do you feel like it's stretching the text? I mean, this seems very obvious to me at this point. Um, egalitarian views that this, this is, I wanted to become egalitarian as I read their actual arguments. I was, I actually got frustrated because I thought I, ex, I expected better, especially because I respect a lot of these egalitarians and they love the Lord. It's not like there's any, any lack in their love for Jesus and their sincere desire to see the body of Christ unified and loving each other and blessing each other and their real desire to, to, to see equality and fair treatment and right treatment amongst men and women. I, I 100% agree with all that. Um, it's the handling of scripture that just depressed me as I was studying many egalitarians. And so I'm just being super straight with you guys because I don't want to protect scholars at the expense of your discernment. 
And that's sometimes what happens in these scholarly discussions. They're going to be so nice to people because, you know, for the sake of kindness that they mislead crowds as to how bad that argument just was. So I don't want to do that to you. So I didn't expect this, uh, but I'm going to call it out. I expected and hoped for solid explanations that would change my views. Didn't get that. My conclusion then on priests, the male role of authority seems like a better explanation. Um, it seems like the best one I, I've, I've seen out there is it's not expressly explained in the Bible that women were not priests because God wants to preserve male authority, but there is a consistency that's there, especially as you add in the New Testament as we'll, we'll get there starting next time around. Next video, when we get to the New Testament, we'll start to see like from Genesis 2 to several examples throughout the scripture to the New Testament, we're seeing that a complete barring of women from roles of authority is wrong, but a complete um, ignoring of different roles is also wrong. And the priesthood seems like a special one where God, this is not just example, this is expressed. God does not want anyone but men to be in these roles of priests. Why, why is that? Well, priests were teachers of the law. Priests affirmed when someone was clean or unclean. Uh, they were a regular go-to source for inquiring of the Lord, including the teaching of Torah and the word of God. So teach the teaching of, of God's word. They would bridge the gap between the people and God, like they were the mediators. They represented the people before God in the tabernacle when they brought the sacrifices. I think there's typological significance here that I'll quickly run through at the end of our video today. Adam represents us more so than Eve in scripture, Adam being a man. Priests represent, and we talked about that last time, priests represent us more so than the rest, represent Israel, more so than the rest of Israel, the high priest supremely. They, they stand in representation. They bear the sins of the people as a, to represent ultimately what Christ will do. You see, Jesus represents us all like Adam did in, in eating, so Jesus in dying for us on the cross. Jesus represents us all like the high priest represents the people bearing their sins before the ark of the Lord. Jesus bore our sin on the cross. I'm not saying that representation absolutely requires more authority, but it seems like it, it, it fits naturally with it. If men are the representatives of their, their, um, their community, uh, Adam is the representative of mankind, Jesus being a man representing all mankind, that there's a sense in which a society, we in most situations look to see men as the representatives of the culture. They don't have to be in every case, but it seems like the norm. And that seems to fit with other things we see in scripture. So um, that's how it, that's how I see it. That's currently as I'm still studying through these things and working through it, it's soft. That's soft evidence. The priests and the rest, of, it's soft evidence toward a soft complementarian view, not a real hard one. It seems to refute that. So women were, let's summarize it all so far. Women were town representatives, at least in crisis. They were queens with limited authority underneath the king. They were judges, at least in one case, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't pluralize it. There was one judge who was a judge for decades, who made authoritative rulings and passed that were passed up to her from other courts. And she did a good job with it. They were prophets, less often than men, but still with clear approval, not as a result of crisis, not because men abandoned responsibilities, but because God just called those women to be prophets. That's clearly approved in the New Testament. We'll get there next week. Um, so those are things that women were, what women were not. In the scripture, in the Old Testament, women in the examples, they were not kings. Egalitarians don't talk about this ever, but they don't provide any positive examples of a woman ruling, ruling with approved authority like a king does. 
Now, these are just examples. They're not, God doesn't say that has to be the case. I'm just saying, we're just surveying all the data. Um, that could be culturally influenced. Women were not military leaders. That could be by design. Given the example of Deborah, where God's like, hey, you're a judge, but you won't be the military leader. There's going to be a limit there. It could also be because women are small <laughs> and weaker than men. Like, if this offends you, women, like you're just living in a fantasy if you think that women are as strong as men. Like, you're not. A woman can be stronger than a man, but men are far stronger than women. And this is not bad. Like this is, And any construction of reality that tries to deny this because we're offended by it is going to run into, we're going to bump into walls. Um, but what I'm saying is that could actually be the reason why we don't want women military leaders, at least in the Old Testament times, is because they're not just sitting in a boardroom in Washington making decisions about troops far away. These military leaders are going onto the field and they're battling and fighting. And you don't want your military leader to be like one of your weaker fighters. So what I'm suggesting here is this may not be a sense of um, the rightness of male authority. It might be the result of the capability of a military leader and women not simply having. Them. It's the same reason why I personally am not entirely comfortable with how we've been doing firefighters in California. Like I, I know that <clears throat> at least for a season. There were different standards for firefighters for men and women. Men, to be a firefighter, you have to be able to carry a human body up a ladder and down a ladder. Like that's one of the qualifying things. That's really hard, by the way. But they lowered the weight requirements for women firefighters. And I'm just like, that seems really bad. <laughs> like, um, like, I just want to live in the real world and be like, I want you to be able to carry me down a ladder if I'm going to die. And not be like women's rights and like to and to the death of all the people in the fire. All right, so I just want to you know just offend everybody out there. Um, so that could be part of the reason why the military leader things. The other thing women couldn't do, and this is the one, the only one that is clearly by God's design, is they couldn't be priests. Everything else, it seems like it's just example based. This is clearly by God's design. Couldn't be priests, even though female priests existed in other religions, and that's very consistent with the complementarian view of the highest spiritual role of authority, of, of, of an office of authority, not being given over to women, only being held for men. I think that that seems really consistent. So um, conclusions from this study uh, that I want you to hopefully take away as you read different uh, egalitarians, complementarians, you read different people on these topics. Um, egalitarians fail to make a positive case that there's no role difference at all. And part of the reason they fail is because they, they tend to horribly stretch the text of scripture beyond what it, what it's saying, even to making it contradict some plain teachings. Complementarians on the other side, they fail to rule out, this is important, all women in all leadership. Even if you want to argue it's less than ideal, you cannot rule it out because of examples like Deborah. That to me is a big takeaway. The extreme complementarian view, which I'll call patriarchal view, right? <clears throat> that more extreme view, there's a bunch of nuances there I won't try to get into, but that view seems like it ends up being wrong. Um, but the overall flow of the Old Testament does support men in these highest roles, uh, at least by example, and by priests by demand. Next week, we're getting into women in the New Testament. Now, this is a much bigger debate area than even what I've covered so far. Um, <clears throat> so were women apostles? There is a real debate, serious debate in scholarship where a lot of scholars think that there was a female apostle, Andronicus, 
and Junia, these, this couple, and that Junia was a, a woman who was actually an apostle. And if you could be an apostle, why can't you be everything else, right? Apostles were like apostles. Um, were women elders, deacons, and teachers. Many egalitarians say women filled all these roles in the first century in the New Testament. Um, and we're going to look at the text of scripture that they use to suggest that. Do female prophets mean that women can be elders? Because there were definitely female prophets. I would say that. What do we make of the egalitarian argument that God gives spiritual gifts to women and men? So you can't rule them out of any role that uses those gifts. If a woman's gifted, you can't say no. So yes, this this whole thing is very slow. I appreciate your patience. I'm, I'm blessed by those of you who are all stoked and excited about this careful, thoughtful, slow work through on this topic. Um, and I'll keep bringing each thing. I'm trying to make these videos any longer than they have to be. Um, some of you think I make them too long. Some think it's not long enough. And um, yeah, who knows who's right. <laughs> my goal, though, is this. Keep this in mind. My goal is not to provide you with a summary of what you should think about this issue. There are a million of those. And those are not good enough. And the reason I say it is because I was not satisfied with those summaries. I wanted a thorough, biblical, comprehensive view. I wanted to listen to every relevant, important debate. And I wanted to really navigate those waters clearly and see how the unity of the scripture would speak on this issue to me. So that's the resource I'm creating. I want you to see thorough, thoughtful, careful, biblical understanding of these issues. I won't be able to answer every question in the world, but I will try to answer all the questions I can once we have gathered all the biblical data. And it's only going to get more clear as we get into the New Testament. Thank you guys for joining. I will try to get this next video up next Monday at 1 p.m. If I can't, I'll let you know I'm on social media and stuff. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and um, on my YouTube community posts. I can tell you when it'll be. Um, it just depends on how long it takes to put it together. It's a massive amount of content. And I'm not grouping these things together based on the size of the video, but based on all the data on that topic. So we did all the Old Testament stuff by examples uh, today. Next, we'll do all the New Testament examples. And it's a lot of data. See you then.